And so winning marriage in that sense was not just about marriage. It was about changing hearts and minds, seizing this engine of transformation in a way that would enable us to keep winning employment rights, family protections, service in the military, uh, protection for trans people. Now, marriage didn't win all of those things alone, but marriage, maybe more than any other single thing, gave us so much more to work with and moved us so much further down the field. So as we continue these fights, we stand in a very, very different place and with a lot more wind in our sails. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I feel very fortunate to have had the chance to talk to my guest today. His name is Evan Wolfson. He was the founder of Freedom to Marry, a group that helped set the strategy for the gay marriage fight serving as president until its 2015 victory. He was listed as one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. He now teaches law and social change, practices law, and provides advice to other social movements that are seeking to learn from the same-sex marriage movement. We had a good talk about his history and some of the lessons learned. You'll want to listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Evan Wolfson of Freedom to Marry. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Evan, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm Evan Wolfson. I founded and led the Freedom to Marry campaign that successfully won marriage for same-sex couples here in the United States. And I now spend the bulk of my time advising and assisting other movements, other causes, other organizations here in the U.S. and in uh, other parts of the world, movements and causes and organizations that want to take the lessons on how to win from this successful campaign and adapt it to other urgent work still at hand. That sounds like a, an amazing place to be, honestly, to have led a successful movement and to have learned enough from it to apply to other really important stuff. I envy that position. Yeah, it is very gratifying to be able to take what we learn through many mistakes and missed opportunities and successes and figure out how to keep making the world better in support of other people and other causes. It's kind of a mix of pleasure in being able to do that with a bit of novelty in being in a different place of life where you're no longer quite in charge of something. You're now assisting others and helping with other parts of work. So I'm still still adjusting to that after so many decades of direct activism, uh, but it's certainly nothing to complain about. And it's also, I assume, 
focuses you on so many things that still need fixing, which can be frustrating as well. Yes. And not, not only that, it also is a chance to really try to devote myself, at least in some small way, to uh, working with others and assisting others on causes that I didn't put as much into when I was busy working on the causes I was directly involved with. So it is very gratifying to get to be able to do that, to help in so many things I care about instead of working primarily on one thing I care about. Where did you grow up? What's your family background that eventually leads you down this path? I was born in New York, but I grew up in Pittsburgh. My parents were New Yorkers, but wanted to leave New York. I spent my whole childhood growing up in Pittsburgh, wanting to get to New York, which is where I now live. It was and is a very loving family. I, you know, I'm very, very lucky to have had wonderful parents who really put the kids first and the family first and gave us so much. And I'm still very, very close with my siblings as well. Um, we just got back from Thanksgiving together after two years. I had a very supportive, loving, good childhood. I, you know, I feel, as I said, very lucky about that. I know that the the paper that you wrote in law school about marriage was kind of, you know, it's a, a landmark in the movement, I guess. Can you tell me about your educational path to that? Sure. I went to a very good public high school in Pittsburgh. Same with my siblings and many friends. I'm still close with some of the friends from there today. And then went on to Yale and had a, a, a wonderful education and experience there. My closest circle of friends remains my roommates from Yale. What years were you at Yale? So I was at Yale from 1974 to 1978. One decade ex exactly before me. Then I spent two years in the Peace Corps from 1978 to 1980 in a small village in West Africa, and then came back from the Peace Corps and within two weeks was trying to read English and law at Harvard uh, in law school from 1980 to 1983. And it was in 1982-83 that I wrote the, the thesis on fighting for the freedom to marry. I didn't know that one wrote a thesis in law school. Is that the normal thing? Uh, I don't know if it's true for all law schools, but they, and they didn't call it a thesis. They, we actually referred to it as the third year paper, but it was basically a writing project requirement outside of your normal courses, in, in addition to your normal courses. You had to pick something and write a big something about it. So it was, in a sense, like a thesis. How did you come to decide on that topic? So I, by then in my life, I had now not only known I was gay, which had always been true really as long as I can ever remember, but had now almost completed telling everyone about it. I had come out in waves to, you know, a very small circle of friends and then to a close circle, but somewhat larger circle of friends and even acquaintances and then my family and then everybody, the world. So by then I was out and I had assembled, I can talk about at least two of the most important formative experiences that led me to the topic I came to, but I knew I wanted to write about how could we make the world better for gay people? How could we change things? I wanted to combine my great life passion for history and for politics and activism, and now my education, such as it was on law, with this personal identity and this question of how could we combat injustice, as I always believed it to be. I was very lucky when I was growing up, even though I knew 
it was not really something I should talk about for a period of time and kept quiet about. I never internalized any negative feelings about being gay. I never thought there was anything wrong with me. I always thought there was something wrong with everyone else. So this was a chance to now figure out how are we going to change that? How were your parents when you told them? I had never had any doubt that my parents were going to remain loving and uh, involved and supportive. And they did. And I was lucky not to have to face that kind of fear of rejection, et cetera. But it took them a period of adjustment. They were surprised, to my surprise. They were not happy they, because they really saw it as it's something that was going to make my life harder. And I think they had a bit of a sense of this was not the life they had envisioned for me. So it was a surprise. And of course, in part, it was also not the life they envisioned for them. They immediately thought, well, this means there won't be grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They never like, you know, tried to talk me out of it or fight me or, or anything like that. But it took them more than just the first conversation to, to fully embrace it and to come to really not see it as a concern. You mentioned two formative experiences. What are you talking about? Yeah. So as I was thinking uh, that I wanted to write about how do we change the world for gay people, I drew on, in particular, two major uh, formative experiences. One was when I served in the Peace Corps, as I mentioned, uh, I was very young. I was actually the youngest in my cohort going to Togo in West Africa, and I eventually was assigned to a small rural village half a mile off the nearest dirt road. So it was really the ends of the earth. And it was there in that village as I made friends and plugged into the life of the community and taught that I also began exploring and acting on being gay. It was there that I really first started having sex with guys. And it was a challenge to come by in a small village. And uh, I always did so under fear of potentially being arrested or having a problem or so on because it was not legal, et cetera. Um, but I was 21 and 22 and uh, moved forward. And so as I was having sex with friends in this small village in rural West Africa, I realized that many of the guys that I was enjoying time with were probably not gay. They were happy to do it or curious to explore it. Like me, they were young and it was sex, so what the hell? Or they liked me and they were accommodating, et cetera. But after we were done, it was like, okay, that was fine, but it really wasn't there. It wasn't them in the same way that it was for me. But, but some of the guys that I did connect with, I actually thought, you know, they are actually like me. They would be gay if they, like me, lived in a society where that was allowed, where that was permitted. And so the first big lesson that taught me that came into the paper later was that who you are is profoundly shaped by the, the law, the society, the acceptance, the family structures, and even the language that your society gives you, even on something as important as your own intimate identity to yourself. Uh, you know, they lived in a country where it was illegal, and everybody would say it didn't exist, homosexuality. And they didn't even have a word for being gay or for having a partner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas I was going to spend my two years in Africa and then was going to go home. And not that our society was so welcoming either, but I knew I was going to be able to build a life for myself. So this lesson that society so profoundly shapes your 
freedom, your choices, your sense of self, your opportunities, even on the level of language, was an idea that stuck with me as a 21, 22-year-old. And the second really turning point experience that contributed to the idea of the paper was that back in law school, as I was studying and reading, I happened to read in the New York Times the review of a book that had come out, which was the book that changed my life. And that was this magisterial, sweeping, sprawling academic study of the first several thousand years of Western civilization and how homosexuality had been treated. It was called Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality by a Yale professor named John Boswell. And I, in reading that book, was able to combine this life passion for history with my own personal journey and my own personal sense of self. And what Boswell's book showed was that contrary to the way we now thought of it, homosexuality had not always been understood as the same thing and had not always been treated in the same way. And there were many societies, many chapters in human history across several continents where gay people and homosexuality were respected, were exalted, were incorporated, were included, or were simply seen as part of the natural diversity of human experience. And so that taught me this very important lesson, which was if it had once been different, it could be different again. We could change people's understanding, again, by claiming law, by claiming language, and so on. So while when I came now to write the paper, these two ideas were bubbling around in my head, and I knew I wanted to write about how do we change things for gay people. So I asked myself, well, what's at the heart of anti-gay exclusion, anti-gay oppression? Why is society so hostile? And I concluded that it's because of who we love, that at the center of this discrimination is love. So then I asked myself, okay, what is the primary legal structure? What is the primary language in which our society engages and regulates love? And of course, I concluded that our society, like virtually every other human society, does so through marriage. So my idea was that if we could claim the vocabulary, let alone the law of marriage, we would be... A, winning something very, very important, but B, we would be claiming this engine of transformation, this language of shared values that would serve as a change agent that would change how non-gay people understood who gay people are in a way that would enable us to win not only marriage, but eventually everything else. And so that's what I came to write the paper. And the paper basically argues for marriage as both an important goal for our movement and as a strategy for further progress. It seems like a paper like that could come out of a philosophy department or a history department. But when you are writing it at Harvard Law School, I assume it faced the law very directly. What was going on in the law then and what was relevant and how did you fit that into the paper? Right. Well, at that time, as I mentioned already several times, I still read voraciously history and loved history and had majored in history in college and so on. So I was bringing all of that. I was teaching as a uh, teaching fellow political philosophy at Harvard while in law school. So you're absolutely right that history and philosophy were huge parts of this paper, as was popular culture. I had this whole section on uh, images of 
of gender bending and homosexuality, the movie Tootsie, et cetera. Um, I had a digression on feminism. I had a digression on Boswell's uh, recounting of the history of the treatment of gay people, et cetera. And toward the end, I tacked on a little bit of law. And that's probably why the paper really didn't do that well as far as the grade, because the professor who was grading it looked at it was like, what the hell? Um, because it, it wove together all these different disciplines and, and terrains of engagement, terrains of persuasion to make the case for the law to have the right result. And then I had a legal argument. The legal argument that I put forward, not particularly new to me, combined ideas of freedom or liberty under the law, rights, and equality, equal treatment, equal inclusion, equal dignity, etc., in a way that Justice Kennedy, when he eventually wrote the opinion 32 years later in the marriage case, wove together. I thought of it as a sort of a double helix of not pitting the liberty strands of the Constitution against the equality strands, but somehow that they reinforce and combine each other. And that was the argument I made. Uh, and ultimately, that actually did turn out to be the argument that won. But what was needed in order to win that legal argument was the everything else that the paper kind of prefigured, the ways in which we could tap into people's sense of values, sense of fairness, sense of understanding, empathy, history and experience in order to create a climate in which the law could achieve a successful result. That prefiguring of, in the paper of what needed to be the methodology to win became ultimately the strategy that did lead to victory, although I didn't you know, lay it out exactly in those terms in the paper. I took a class with Boswell when I was an undergrad and in medieval history, and the what left the most impression on me was one day he came to school beat up. He'd been assaulted on the street, I assume as a, some sort of hate crime. And to see your professor like that. That's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Many, not many years, a, a year later after writing the paper, actually not even a year later, months later after writing the paper, I moved to New York and then took part in my first gay pride parade. And because I was new in New York, I didn't really know anybody uh, gay here. So I decided I'd march with the Yale contingent in the gay pride parade. And I went and joined and was walking down Fifth Avenue on this glorious sunny day in the midst of more gay people than I'd ever seen before. You know, it was this exhilarating experience. And I looked over and thought, wait, that guy, he's the guy on the book jacket. And <laughs> went over to him and it was Jeb, John Boswell. And we immediately clicked and I told him about the paper I just finished reading and he started telling me about the book he was now researching and it became the beginning of our friendship and also our work together as we both were advocating in our respective domains for the freedom to marry. It was just this you know, rooftop day of meeting your hero who you had just spent months writing a paper about and totally clicking and seeing a pathway forward in terms of how you could work together. My older daughter is an undergrad now, a sophomore there, and it is very apparent how much progress has been made since my day, how open the campus is in welcoming comparatively. Absolutely. Although she does hear many stories about people coming from parts of the country or families which are very difficult. Yeah. Well, one of the important lessons is that no matter how big a change you've made, no matter how much you've advanced... It's not true everywhere, and of course that's true not just in the U.S., but across the world. 
And also, even where there is progress and where things are good, everybody has their own journey. Everybody has their own experience. Everyone has their own timeline. So no matter how accepting our society becomes, we still have to create a place for each person and a pathway for each person. And the other thing is that no positive progressive change cannot be undone. Their fight always continues, unfortunately. That is correct. That's what history teaches us. But at the same time, it is important to celebrate progress and the fact fact that things have changed and that we can change things and not get mired in uh, despair or futility. Yeah, for sure. This particular change feels pretty solid, at least currently. So we'll see. How was the paper received? You mentioned something about maybe not the best grade from the person who graded it. And then how did you uh, allow it to get wider readers? Yeah. So first of all, it was hard for me even to find a professor to supervise the paper. Even some of the great champions and liberals and most open and progressive people who ultimately did go on to do important work in gay rights were kind of dismissive or too busy to take on the paper. So the ones that I went to in the beginning had to say no or did say no. Uh, And so I wound up with kind of a basic bread and butter family law professor who had no particular connection to it and was, you know, a very nice guy, but not one of the the great lions of gay or progressive or liberal championing, who was very nice and very supportive, but as I said, was kind of, I think, bemused and perplexed by what he eventually wound up reading. And I, I always forget now whether it was a B or a B plus, but it was not an A uh, on the paper. But I always felt that he made up for that when decades later, actually, he was quoted in a profile of me in, I think, the LA Times, some paper. uh, And he said, it's such a pleasure to see somebody apply something that he learned in law school. (laughs) So I I felt like that quote redeemed the grade. And of course, I myself went on to try to make up in extracurricular activities in the next 32 years what I didn't get on the grade. At the time, who did other people read it? Or when did it become part of the movement in any way? Yeah. So the paper itself, I mean, the only people who read it right at the time were my sister and my best friend who were helping me in the last frantic nights. I was scrawling and writing and finishing in the last minutes on my yellow legal pads, and they were very kindly typing it up to be submitted. I don't have any specific memory of anybody else particularly reading it. It may have been that a few other fellow students, et cetera, looked at it. But the paper itself, in the way that people now talk about it, never actually became part of the the movement in the way that you're describing. I mean, it is out there in the public. It's on the freedomtomarry.org website. You can Google it and find it. And some scholars and and people now writing about our success and, and recounting the history have delved into it. And actually, they now remember it far more clearly than I do. Uh, <laughs> but it wasn't so much that the paper itself as a specific document became this you know, roadmap for victory, et cetera. Rather, the ideas in the paper and the methodology of the paper, as I then began applying them, rewriting in other formats and other calls to action and other articles, et cetera, laid the foundation for what came later. But I I think the number of people who read the paper and then took action is probably pretty small. How does it hold up when you have 
gone back and looked at it, obviously things tend to be dated. Does this feel that way or does it feel like it holds up well? There are some word choices I wouldn't make today and wouldn't have made even maybe a decade later uh, after writing the paper. For example, I use the phrase same-sex marriage, and I am now kind of known for telling people not to say same-sex marriage. Instead, talk about marriage or the freedom to marry, not something separate or other or lesser. There are things like that in there that don't hold up, but actually, I think the paper is what many people have celebrated it as. It was actually quite prescient in its uh, way of combining things and synthesizing things in its refusal to take no for an answer. You know, I wasn't the first person to think of the idea of gay people marrying. So I wasn't the first person to think of the idea of gay people getting married. When I was writing the paper, I was writing about the brave pioneers in the first wave of marriage litigation a decade or so before me. And how each of the courts that considered the question had basically rubber stamp discrimination and threw it out, including even the U.S. Supreme Court. One of those cases had reached the United States Supreme Court, which in 1972 didn't even bother to write an opinion. They wrote one sentence saying there's no federal constitutional claim here, nothing to see here. And what I was saying 10 years or so later was, let's not take that no for an answer. And here's how we can get to yes which then became the next project of the next 32 years. And so I think when you read the paper with that understanding, it's quite striking how many of the elements of methodology and law and approach and the way it it invoked feminism and history and all the things I've talked about already is quite quite powerful and striking. And I also made the point in the paper, and I know some of the commentators who write about it now are struck by this, that this was not only important for gay people, this is important for our society. It's that by affirming the freedom to marry for gay people, non-gay people are saying as much, if not more, about who they are, what their values are, what kind of society we want to have as they are doing a favor or even justice for gay people. And so the way in which activism and democratic engagement can strengthen society and democracy for all of us was very much a thread in the paper. And that, of course, stands up very well today. So you become a lawyer and participant in the movement in the time between going to law school and starting that organization, Freedom to Marry. Can you talk about how your career intersected the ups and downs in the in the fight for that progress? Yeah. So when I was writing the paper in 1982-83 and then moved to New York in 83 and began a day job as a prosecutor, it's important to remember, first of all, where were we in history? This was a terrible time for gay people and, and for America generally. It was the Uh, AIDS epidemic, the catastrophe of AIDS, and we were all living, and particularly as I moved to New York, I myself found myself living under this threat of fear and death constantly with our friends dying around us, with desperate activism being stoked and springing up as a matter of life and death. And it was also this singular experience, I can now say now that we're on our second pandemic of my lifetime, that pandemic was not as universal, not as broad as the pandemic in which we're finding ourselves today. Uh, 
But And that, of course, was good in some ways, but it was also terrible in some ways because it meant that as gay people, we would be walking down the street in a war zone. We would be feeling like we were fighting life and death every moment when people across the street were just going about their business, sometimes deliberately and sometimes unthinkingly compounding the exclusion and discrimination and oppression and burden, which at least now in this pandemic, we're all sharing in some degree or another. So it was a terrible, scary threatening time of really terror of great loss and death uh, and fear. And at the same time, the political administration of the country was at the time we thought the worst it would ever be, you know, who knew that Reagan would only be the second or third worst president of my lifetime. But at the time, it seemed like we had hit rock bottom. And uh, we had this extremely hostile administration that was our, our opponent in alignment with the then newly surging so-called religious right, so-called moral majority, et cetera, in positions of power. And you had the likes of Jesse Helms alongside Reagan and others compounding the horrors of AIDS and the existing anti-gay discrimination with new layers of discrimination and abuse. So it was a terrible, scary time to come of age as a, as a young gay person and then as a budding activist and writing this paper and then moving to New York. But it was also very exhilarating in some sense, because we were on the front lines. We felt like a happy band of warriors. We felt like it was life and death and it mattered what we were doing. And as a young person, that was very exciting also. And so moving to New York and having all the joys and excitement of building a gay life in the city I'd always wanted to live in, combined with these terrible things going on all around me and, and digging into them and being part of them, that's the climate in which I was now in New York, finding my way as a young activist. Just a few months after beginning my job, my day job as a prosecutor in the Kings County DA's office, working under Brooklyn District Attorney Elizabeth Holtzman, whom I had admired a few years earlier when she had been the youngest member of Congress in the Watergate uh, investigation that led to the likely impeachment of Nixon and his resignation, which I was very active on as a young high school student agitating for the impeachment of Nixon. So I had admired her on TV and the idea of coming to work for her, this strong feminist leader who had now become a district attorney uh, and being able to do public service in her office, that was very exciting to me. So that was my day job. But as soon as I got established there, I began looking for ways to get involved in the movement, the LGBT movement, which we then called the gay rights movement. I signed up with a small organization, which was then one of the preeminent organizations as it is now, but very, very small, called Lambda Legal, which is one of the most important parts of the, the legal arm of the LGBT movement doing cases and public education around the law. And so I began volunteering with Lambda. And because these days were so terrible and oppressive and the work was so huge and, and unending and because it was a very, very, very small organization and there were very few people who were coming out and doing the work, even though I was a new attorney and very young and pretty inexperienced, I wound up getting to work on big, big things uh, from a, a very early point. So throughout the 80s, I spent my time, even though I was just a volunteer and just a new law grad, working on huge cases, including, for example, writing the friend of the court brief for several of the gay organizations in the case of Bowers v. Hardwick, which was the challenge to 
the Georgia's law that prohibited private sexual intimacy by gay people, even in our own home, and was really a hugely important case, which we built to in, in years of strategy, and which became the largest loss our movement ever had in the Supreme Court in 1986. I wrote the brief, even though I was, you know, in my 20s and a new attorney and so on. So my activism was big in the 1980s as a volunteer in a very exciting, if very scary time. How did you weather? I mean, there were ups and downs, but there were some major downs and it looked pretty bleak a lot of that period. How did you like maintain any positivity that you're going to ultimately get where you wanted to go? Yeah, it was it was during that chapter that the 1980s that I, you know, also remember I had I come to New York having written this paper and had joined these organizations and was, was a volunteer and began arguing that we should, despite everything terrible going on and despite all these fires raging that people were rightly focused on, we needed to have an affirmative strategy and we needed to find a way to lift ourselves out of the terrain in which we found ourselves. And that was my strategy for winning the freedom to marry. And that was roundly rejected by pretty much everyone, not just the public at large, not just the great powers of our society, but even within the LGBT movement and community, not that people necessarily themselves were opposed to it, although many were, but the idea that we would, in the midst of all of this, be able to mount this strategy for something the Supreme Court had already said no to, felt pretty marginal to most people. So I spent much of the 1980s working on big cases, engaged with lots of people, fighting for our lives and for the most dire of problems, and at the same time arguing with my friends and colleagues in the movement that we should fight for marriage. It was there that I was able to really kind of come to acknowledge what I think has ever since been one of my identifiable characteristics of success and and personal characteristics that people will cite, which was I always believe we would win. I always believe we could overcome. And I was just temperamentally, as well as strategically, very committed to focusing on the pathway forward rather than the problem. So not that I was blind to all the things I just described going on around us, but they never weighed me down in the same way that they, you know, quite understandably did many, many other people. I was always looking forward. I was always seeing the way we could move and win and believing that we could win. And so that essential hopefulness I, I came to understand was not just a central strategic element necessary for effective change, as I've preached it ever since, but it was also something that I was lucky just to have as my own temperament and my own approach to life. Uh, not that I can't be cranky and cantankerous and grumpy, which I certainly can, but when it comes to the work, I'm very able and consistently committed to being hopeful. I'm not a deeply steeped in the history of this, but it felt to me like the attempt by the Republicans under George W. Bush to put this on the ballot as a wedge issue to their political advantage sort of worked in the short term, but kind of created the seeds for the turnaround after. Is, is that right? Yeah. So you're now jumping several decades ahead, but you're right. The marriage story, the marriage success actually breaks 
somewhat arbitrarily, but rather nicely into decades. Why don't you give me a quick overview of, of that? Okay, sure. The 70s is where the freedom to marry really gets on the national stage and enters the courts and couples really begin fighting for marriage and are all rejected. And there's this flourishing and then this crushing of uh, progress uh, in the 70s. In the 80s, we're basically spending our time in the movement fighting against AIDS and deepening legal discrimination and exclusion and at the same time, internally, I've now joined the fight and have come into the story and am arguing that we should fight for the freedom to marry and mostly having those arguments internally with my colleagues and friends and kind of getting nowhere um, except for laying a foundation for what comes later. In the 90s, you now have the, the second wave of marriage litigation, 20 years after that first wave. And what's different is one of those cases, the Hawaii case, finds its way into a court that ultimately, after several years, says, you know what, if excluding gay people um, is from marriage isn't discrimination, it's really not clear what is. I mean, this is denying people something really, really important. And therefore, of course, this is discrimination. But if the government wants to discriminate, it has to show a reason. And so we got our day in court in that Hawaii case in the 90s and went on to do a trial, the world's first ever trial on whether there's a good reason to deny gay people the freedom to marry in Hawaii in 1996, culminating in the first ruling ever in the history of the world that there is no good reason for excluding gay people. And gay people should have the freedom to marry. So the 90s is the breakthrough, the turning point, really, where we first see a court willing to say that this is a denial that cannot be justified and that has not been justified. And concomitant with the case was a re-eruption of this national and indeed international debate that now never stops. From the 90s on, it keeps going. Unlike the first debate and the first engagement and the first wave of cases, which gets stymied, the 90s launches the remainder of what comes and it builds from there. And part of that is because of the historical forces I just described. But part of it is also because I was now placed in the movement and had this track record of having argued about it throughout the entire 1980s and therefore was in the right place at the right time to be able to say, let's seize this tectonic shift, this window opening, this opportunity out of Hawaii and create a campaign, create a movement and spent the next several decades building iterations of the campaign that ultimately led to victory. And of course, in between the first wave in the 1970s and the second wave of marriage litigation, the one that proved to have legs in the 1990s, came the thing that maybe more than anything else changed everything. And that was not me and my paper and my constant persistent nagging, much as I'd like to think those contributed. It was AIDS. AIDS between the 70s and the 90s shattered the silence about gay people's lives and forced non-gay people to come to see gay people in a different way than they had been seeing us decade after decade after decade, to now see us as courageous people, as grieving people, as people who were in deep and committed relationships as we were losing our partners, as people fighting for our partners, as people unfairly discriminated and denied. And, you know, it took time, but those seeds of empathy and understanding and awareness grew into the sea change of public attitudes that we 
stoked and marshaled in the marriage campaign. And AIDS also forced gay people to understand how vulnerable we were from exclusion and that it wasn't enough to say, just don't arrest us, you know, don't harass us, don't persecute us, that we needed to go from a movement about um, leave, leave us alone to a movement about let us in. And that was a, a huge turning point that the 80s and 90s you know, contributed to the arc of how we got from the no of the 1970s to the yes in 2015. In the 2000s, we had this period where I now had launched this marriage campaign, Freedom to Marry, and spent a lot of time trying to get people to buy into it and to commit to it and, and build it to what it needed to become. But at the same time, it spearheaded a much larger coming together of a critical mass of allies and activists and organizations and so on. Not everyone by any means, but enough to begin making a difference. And we began winning some major battles, even as we lost others. Most importantly, of course, we won the freedom to marry in Massachusetts. And unlike in Hawaii, where we won it and it was taken away, in Massachusetts, we held it and couples began getting married. And again, more than anything else, making it real making it part of people's conversation and experience, not just this abstraction to be indifferent to or to be scared about, help change hearts and minds. So as we won that first date and then eventually our second date and then eventually the third and fourth, et cetera, over periods of years, this campaign really found its footing in the 2000s. And in the 2010s, we now hit a critical mass of support. We now were able to build public support. When I was writing my paper in in 1983, we were at 11% support for the freedom to marry in national polling, 11%. When I, with my non-gay co-counsel, Dan Foley, won the first ruling in favor of the freedom to marry in Hawaii in 1996, we had grown that 11% through conversation and the Hawaii case and other activism to 27%. So we were at 27% in 1996. In 2010, we were able to have grown that to a majority. We had a fragile majority of support now. The American people in polls were showed 51%, 53%, et cetera, which wasn't enough to sustain support during a pitched battle. So we had, for example, in California, Proposition 8, where, where the voters voted to take it away, even though we started with majority support. It was a fragile majority, but we had grown it from 11%. Over the next succeeding several years, California was 2008, then we had a couple other important battles, some we won, some we lost. 2010, we hit nationwide majority, not just California. From 2010 to 2015, our work and the persuasion and the victories we began winning in much greater sequence grew that 50-ish percent to 63% when we finally stood in front of the Supreme Court for the win in 2015. That's the broad arc uh, of many battles, many ups and downs, many defeats, and each decade has its particular piece. So you had asked about something that happened in 2004, which was George Bush and Karl Rove attacked gay people and attacked the freedom to marry and called for a federal constitutional amendment and engineered ballot measures in states like the one that we eventually saw in California to try to cement discrimination against marriage, 
sometimes against partnership and family for gay people, into state constitutions. And they were doing so thinking that that would drive up their turnout and, and split the left, split the Democrats. It did have some of that effect, but actually much of that effect was overrated even at the time. Even Matthew Dowd, for example, Bush's pollster later said there's actually no data that shows that it really did drive turnout. Turnout in the states where the measures were on the ballot uh, either would have been for Bush in the first place or was actually somewhat lower proportionally than in states where it hadn't been. But at the time, it was viewed as this effective wedge strategy and this this use, and it sent tremendous fear throughout the, the LGBT movement, as well as the broader left and progressives and Democrats and so on. And there were a lot of demands on us that we should retrench, that we should give up, that we should aim lower in what we were aiming for. But fortunately, and I can tell the story of how, we were able to persuade a critical mass of supporters, allies, activists, organizations, and funders that no, actually what we needed to do was double down, that this was the winning strategy, and that even though we hadn't won on our opponent's timeframe, we were winning, that this is what winning looked like. Probably my most important speech that I've ever given, I gave at that time, and it's since been anthologized and so on, and people can, again, find it by Googling or looking on the Freedom to Marry website, and it was called Marriage Equality and Lessons for the Scary Work of Winning. And I argued that this is what winning looks like. Later, after you've won, it's easy to say, oh, it was inevitable and this, you know, this turning point did this and da 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 and everything I'm telling you now. But of course, when you're in it, you don't know that. And I was arguing that we should understand this is what winning looks like and here are some lessons for how we're going to get from this place of attack to the victory. I have a sense from what you said in the beginning that you in applying this lessons to other movements that you feel like there was something in the nature of this strategy that's, what was that? I think there are several things we eventually did right, not to say that we did everything perfectly and we certainly missed many opportunities and you know made mistakes and had disagreements like everyone else. It never was just some you know golden arc of success. But uh, there were definitely elements that you can say are adaptable to other important work. Um, One is that we did very well on something I call the ladder of clarity, which says that there are these four rungs on this ladder that you need to pay attention to and try to get right in order to maximize your effectiveness and your success. So the ladder of clarity says, start at the top rung, start with where you want to go. What are you trying to achieve? How do you know when you've won? and its clarity of goal. And Freedom to Marry, as the name would suggest, was very clear about what the goal was. It wasn't everything we want. It wasn't we want a harmonic convergence of all of our values with the way the world operates, much as we want that. It wasn't everything the LGBT movement was fighting for and cared about. It wasn't everything I cared about and worked on. But it it was a campaign designed to achieve a particular goal. And putting the goal forward clearly is important for yourself as a person and as an organization because it enables you in your work, in your campaign, in your pathway, in your engagement to be efficient, to be effective, to figure out what do you need to worry about and what don't you need to worry about? What is it going to take? How do you do this? 
When are you spending your time on the right thing as opposed to all the millions of things you could otherwise be spending your time on? And it's important, clarity of goal, because by putting forward the goal, you invite others to care about it. You invite others to join in, to think anew about whether this is something they want and whether it's something that maybe they've been told they can't have, but actually they do believe they can have it. And that was very important in our movement where not only had society, not only had the law, not only had psychiatry, not only had religion said no, but the courts had said no. And our own movement had sometimes said no. So getting people to remember, oh yeah, I actually do want this, or to come to a place of embracing it was an important element of success. So clarity of goal, this first rung is very, very important. From clarity of goal, you come on this ladder to the next rung, which is clarity of strategy. Strategy is just sort of a fancy word for the pathway. You know, what is it going to take to get there? What do you need to do? Or as I like to sum it up, whom do I need to move to do what when in order to get what I want? And Freedom to Marry was all about strategy. We had it on our website. We didn't keep it a secret. We branded it as the roadmap to victory. We talked about it incessantly in order to help people understand that there was a way to succeed. And as you and I discussed, even my law school paper put that forward even before I was thinking in these terms. We had a strategy and the strategy shaped the work we did. And so you get to the next rung of this ladder of clarity, and that's clarity in what I call vehicles. Vehicles are the programs, the partnerships, the structures, the resources that are necessary to achieve your strategy, your work plan. What are the things you're going to do in fulfillment of what's needed, the strategy, in order to get to the goal? And we did a very good job of creating different kinds of programs and mechanisms and adapting our structures, et cetera, and changing our work plan, not our strategy, but our work plan in order to achieve the strategy to the goal. And finally, the fourth rung on this ladder of clarity is clarity in what I call action steps, which are the things you're giving other people, other organizations to do so that they can bring a piece to the work demanded by the strategy. So it can be as simple as donate or have a conversation or volunteer to you know, build an organization, mount an effort, bring a lawsuit, lobby your legislator, go visit your constituent, the constituents who visit and persuade the decision maker, et cetera. Um, and so we did very well on this ladder of clarity. And by teasing out those different elements and looking at the different examples, people can think about have we organized our cause this way? Have we thought about our campaign this way? Am I working this way as an activist and so on? Some of the other things that I think are adaptable are how to bring into synergy what Dr. King called the methodologies of social change. These are the methodologies such as litigation, legislation, public education, direct action, fundraising, electoral work. And instead of choosing one, you need to think about how in synergy might I combine them so they reinforce and engage each other. And you don't necessarily have to be the one doing everything. No one is the one doing everything. But how do you, you bring together a critical mass of players who will get these things to happen? I could keep throwing out examples of, of lessons, but maybe the simplest way to sum it up is when I try to sum up how we won in three words, the three words are hope, clarity, 
and tenacity. Tenacity, because as I've now described, change, particularly important change, takes time. Enduring change takes time. It took us more than four decades. It took me myself 32 years in the U.S. working from my paper until our victory in 2015, and I'm still working on it in one way or another, as are, of course, many, many, many others. So change does not happen easily, and it does not happen without, as we discussed, many, many ups and downs and losses and defeats. We lost far more battles and far more cases than we won until quite late in the arc that I described. It really wasn't until the 2010s of all the decades I described that we started winning more than we lost. Even in the 2000s, we, where we won our first victory for the freedom to marry and then eventually won the second state and so on, we lost more than we won. But we had a strategy and organizing and different methodologies that enabled us to overcome those losses to get to the win. So tenacity is necessary. And it takes, the second of the words I gave you, clarity. And I've already described the importance of clarity of goal, clarity of strategy, clarity in the work plan, et cetera, clarity about what you're doing and, and what you're conveying to other people. But it all begins with hope, that first word. It all begins with believing you can change something seeing a vision, believing in your vision, and then getting other people to believe, conveying hope. And so as important as it is to be hopeful yourself, to really believe that others can change, that you can trust that not everyone, but enough will change. Important as it is to believe that and have that hopefulness, you also want other people to have it. And that's another reason why, as we discussed way back earlier, I think it's so important to talk more about the pathway than the problem. Don't spend all your time cataloging how bad everything is and everything that can go wrong. Think about how are we going to get it to turn right? Where are we going to get our building blocks of success upon which we can keep going? It feels to me like the linchpin of this is that choice of goal in this case. And there's something about choosing the freedom to marry, which is in a certain way a conservative sort of goal. It's very enmeshed in values about family and, and things that are very broadly shared. Can you talk about how you chose that and why that made sense and whether there was a battle over it and also how then other movements, which may not quite see where they have something similar that they can rally people around, can find something like that? Yeah. So I, I would say that the two most important elements, what I've just talked about uh, in various iterations over this conversation are goal and strategy. I actually think those two are equally important and, and combined, but it is important that goal dictates strategy and then strategy in turn dictates structure and work plan and all that, not the other way around. So some would argue that the freedom to marry was con a conservative goal, and certainly there were many internal critics within our own movement and within our community who feel that way and who even more felt that way over much of the time. There were others who responded to it because it was a conservative, so-called, way of approaching change. 
that it was tapping into values that people already had instead of saying they need to throw out everything they believe and completely find a new world on my footing rather than theirs. Um, so yes, I understand the argument about conservative, uh, the conservative I mean, nature. I mean, conservative in a positive sense there. No, I understand. Yeah. And, and yeah, and yes, what you just said. And there were many who experienced it as conservative in what they would think of as a negative sense and were opposed to it for that reason as, as well. And so, you know, I would sometimes go from one rally or meeting where I was being criticized for working on something that was too conservative to the next meeting where I'd be criticized for working on something that was too ambitious, too bold, too idealistic, too crazy, um, too transformative. And now, of course, Freedom to Marry is taught as an example of success. And in some of the literature, it's now characterized as an example of transformative change, as opposed to what the writers think of as, quote, transactional change. And transactional change is where you start out on your path and you look at the work and the world that exists and the powers that be and the obstacles, and you look for the thing you can do that will eke out a victory on the terms with which you're presented. And you get that thing and then you think about, okay, what do I want to do next? And that's trans that's transactional yeah. change. This still feels big to me, but yes. Yeah. I, and yeah. so freedom to in this taxonomy, freedom to marry is more typically characterized as transformational change because instead of starting with where can we eke out a victory on someone else's terms? It started out with a, what's the world we want? What do we want to achieve? And then worked backward from that and looked at where can we get the success? Now, these two things are not polar opposites because in order to achieve even transformational change, you do, I would argue, want to have building blocks and increments and steps and a pathway that doesn't go from A to Z on the first bound, it goes from A to B to C to Z, you know, but it always has Z in mind as opposed to picking B because some politician says B is, is all I'm going to give you or what have you. So I think of the freedom to marry as more in that nature and therefore not quote unquote conservative, because I also think it was in itself, not just transformational in order to win marriage for gay people, but winning marriage for gay people changed the world not just for gay people, but for trans people and for many other people who experience discrimination because of their difference. And that's why it's seen as such a model of success, because it actually changed the, the, the terrain so much, not just on marriage, but on, quote unquote, everything, that even though it didn't win everything, it didn't finish everything, it just put us in, into a whole different world and thus was transformational, even though, of course, much work and it remains to be done, both in terms of vigilance and in terms of progress on many, many, many connected and interconnected causes. So I think it's important that people not bog themselves down in that way. But I also think it's good activism to start with the question, what do I want? What is it I'm trying to achieve? Not just what is today and the injustice and misery and timidity and diversity of view uh, of the current terrain allowing me to pursue. I look at it the other way. I think of it, how do you navigate all those things in, in quest of what you actually want? The one other thing I will say to answer your question is, for me, it was particularly easy choice to single out marriage as something worth fighting on. Not that everyone then suddenly dropped everything and started working on it. And even I did not only work on marriage in the course of my career. I worked on many, many other things in our LGBT uh call to action and need, and in the broader 
you know, as American, as a human being. So and there are other causes I worked on as well. So it was never an all or nothing, do only this thing. But it was easy for me to choose marriage for myself as a priority. Number one, as I said earlier, because I believe that in and of itself, it was big. It was something that was going to change things bring this bundle of meanings and protections and responsibilities and support and inclusion that in a way that mattered and and the denial of which mattered and was unjust. So it was worth fighting for as a goal. But I also believed that marriage itself was a strategy, that it was going to propel us to even further gains down the road, that the, the allies, the assets, the change of hearts and minds the progress, the shift in understanding, the educating of young people and engagement of young people, we're all going to contribute to our ability to then go on to the next round and the next round and the next round. And so winning marriage in that sense was not just about marriage. It was about changing hearts and minds, seizing this engine of transformation in a way that would enable us to keep winning employment rights, family protections, service in the military, uh, protection for trans people services and support for youth, for seniors, etc. Now, marriage didn't win all of those things alone or by itself, and they're not even finished. We're not done. But marriage, maybe more than any other single thing, gave us so much more to work with and moved us so much further down the field. So as we continue these fights, uh, we, we stand in a very, very different place and with a lot more wind in our sails because of the marriage work. And so in that sense, For me, it was an easy choice because it was not just a goal. It was a goal that was also a strategy. So I don't know what sort of movements you're currently advising. I mean, I don't know if it's like global warming or immigration or healthcare, all of the things that people are working on. Could you pick one or two of those and talk about how you think about helping them get where they want to go, where you want to help take our society in different areas? Sure. So, of course, I'm not in charge of any of them now, and I will always begin my conversation with somebody who approaches me from some other cause or organization by making sure they understand, number one, we did, it's not like we did everything right, and it's not a cookie-cutter model that you have to just simply do exactly what we did, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And number two, that they are the much greater expert in immigration or healthcare or animal rights or whatever. And so my greatest value is not to be able to quote, tell them what to do, but to tell them what we did and to engage with them about the kinds of things they're thinking and point out parallels or choices or opportunities uh, that they may want to consider. And then they can take what works and throw out the rest uh, as it applies to the particular battle. So you know, one example is in the immigration world, which is a cause I've actually been pretty involved with as a, you know, as a volunteer advisor to key organizations, and one in particular, the National Immigration Law Center, where I am the pro bono senior advisor, is the arguing that one of the things that needs to happen is we need to inject more stories more personal experiences into the toxic discourse that the opponents and anti-immigration forces have created around immigration. And so you saw, for example, the, the dreamers and the activists and organizations supporting that particular effort and that particular piece in the dream act and the dream conversation, et cetera, making a point of really trying to find faces and stories that would resonate with people and tap into values about the positive elements, not just immigrants as victims, 
let alone as evil forces, but to the contrary, that these are wonderful people, young people, part of the American family, part of the American story, people contributing to America and tapping into that whole uh, set of stories and language of, of values and a shared stake in the contributions that we can achieve. And as the immigration movement embraced those elements of success, you saw the, the dreamer question become, in some ways, the, the, the focal point of much of the immigration discussion in order to try to lay a foundation and a spearhead for progress. Now, n- you know, not every immigrant who ought to be respected is a, a dreamer. Not everyone grew up as one of these young people. They also have family and friends and colleagues and so on, and others. But it was a way of crystallizing and understanding and engaging support that could play out in a political way and, and create more space for the next progress. So they, they consciously adopted that element of our success. And I think it, it has proven to be, again, quite effective and useful, although you know we're far from done and there's a lot more work to do. There is no one thing you do that solves everything. You need to combine everything with political work, litigation, public education, and all those other methodologies. So that's that's one example of a, a recent movement that has made an effort to personalize and to make something concrete and real and to tap into values. I think we've seen similar kinds of work in different cycles with gun control. You know, the Parkland activists, the young activists, I think did a really good job of, again, making it about a person and making it about people, making it individual, making it very compelling. But where we have not yet gotten to where we need to get into in gun control, I think is to elevate the whole element of what about all of our interest in living in a safe society, in society where we can walk down the streets, where we can engage in protests, where we can go to a store without the fear and division and hostility and, of course, violence that we see being stoked by the other side. And so we, we need to ratchet up that element of the campaign um, in our effort to also then elect the right people and defeat the wrong people and shape the climate around the courts and, if necessary, address the packing of the courts to try to take the country in the other direction. So there's a lot of work still to be done, but it can draw again on some of the elements that we tapped into in the Freedom to Marry story. Do you think those two movements have a clear goal? One of the things I have said to the the leaders and activists who have come to me in different waves at different points is that I think they could do better in sharpening and then delivering and propounding the clarity of the goal and the clarity of the strategy in their respective campaigns. That has been one of the consistent pieces of advice that I've constantly urged. And and in that, I have to also underscore one of the, the things that we learned in the course of our work, which is you've already heard one of my famous taxonomies of four, the ladder of clarity, where we have four rungs and so on. Another of my taxonomies of four is I will often explain that it took us four things in order to win. The four things we needed to win the freedom to marry were, number one, the constitution, number two, a movement, number three, a strategy, and number four, a campaign. Now, the constitution, I mean the legal principles, the actual guarantees in the charter, the the actual document, but I also mean the system, the constitutional system that as Americans we're lucky to have and that we know is fragile and threatened and we have to defend. But we have 
it, you know, whether it's an independent judiciary or a free press or the right to protest, the ability to organize, et cetera, in addition to equal protection under the law and the freedom to marry in the document or the right to vote, et cetera. These are Archimedean lever points that we can seize. But we know from our history and we see from our current events that they're not enough. They don't self-execute. The Constitution doesn't just work by itself. And so we need these three other things, invoking and engaging and operating under these constitutions and within the system. We need a movement. And by that, I mean to say that it took many different organizations, many different players, many different methodologies of change, many years, many battles, many decades for us to win. No one person, no one organization, no one strategy, not just litigation, et cetera, did the whole thing. But at the same time, it wasn't just a cacophony of random episodes either. There was a strategy. And that's the third element that was needed. Now, not everybody knew there was a strategy. Not everyone agreed on the strategy. But one of my rules of activism, as I've said before, is you don't need every, you need enough. And so getting a critical mass behind a strategy that was effective and sticking with that strategy and then deploying that strategy through the work plan and all the other things we talked about is how we won. And in order to make that happen, there needed to be a campaign. That campaign was Freedom to Marry. Now, Freedom to Marry didn't do everything. That took a movement. It took many different players, many different contributions. Freedom to Marry did not do everything. But Freedom to Marry woke up every day, focused on what the strategy, not just its own work plan, but what the strategy required, and worked to engage and enlist and support and cheerlead and applaud the contributions that were being made by many, many others and to bring them into what the strategy required and where there were gaps, where we couldn't persuade someone else to step in, we figured out how to do what was needed. We reinvented ourselves. We worked to fill those holes in what the strategy required. So it takes both a campaign and a movement. Now, a movement is not going to agree on everything. There are going to be many different organizations. There are going to be many different players. There are going to be many different priorities even within people who generally share a vision of the world. So the environmental movement, the animal rights movement, the gun control movement, the immigration movement, they're not going to all agree on everything any more than the LGBT movement agreed on everything or even the marriage movement. But a campaign can help crystallize agreement among enough people, a critical mass in support of a strategy that will deliver a win, leveraging a movement and the many different contributions of many. So when when activists will say something like, well, we don't all agree on this, well, neither did we. It's not about getting everyone to agree. It's about getting a critical mass to get what's needed. And thinking about these different elements and that ladder of clarity is how you can create a matrix of action for yourself that will galvanize out of what is out there the work that's needed to get to the victory. And then, of course, it takes change and time and uh, many losses along the way. We're about to come to the fruition of a different social movement right now. This one from the right, the anti-abortion movement. It looks like it may accomplish what it wants in the Supreme Court and invalidate Roe v. Wade. We'll see what actually happens, but it sure looks like it. What do you see in what they did what can we learn on our side from that, if anything? And, and just what other observations do you have about things going the other direction at the same time sometimes? 
Yeah, well, almost everything I've said can go in any direction. These are not unique things to the left or to good guys or whatever. So you're absolutely right about that. I think some of the lessons to be reminded of and now to keep applying with force as we try to bring our country back in the direction we want it to head, uh, which we absolutely can do. And let's just remember, you know, the right wing is having this successful traction that you're describing to our great concern and alarm. But from their perspective, they also think they're losing. They think we have all changed the world in ways they hate and the ways they don't like, and they feel like they're under siege and fighting a rearguard action. And they're looking at some of the things we've done and thinking about how can they copy them. So again, there are lessons to be shared in every direction, and we should not wallow in despair. We should instead celebrate the progress and gains we've made and then build on them with the vigilance and resilience and determination that are necessary to actual change. You yourself pointed out earlier that you know things can go backwards, things can change, we're never done, et cetera. And that's what the sad moment in which we find ourselves with regard to Roe v. Wade and women's access to reproductive freedom reminds us of that you can win and you can lose. And sometimes your win is followed by losses, particularly if you don't stay in the battle in an effective and engaged way. So whatever the Supreme Court does is not the last word. We don't have to take it as the last word. If they, because they've packed the court, if they manage to vitiate the Roe v. Wade ruling, then we work to get better justices and better judges and enact better legislation at the state level as well as at the ultimately the federal level and repair and bring the country back. And let's remember, it's not all just about Roe v. Wade. No matter what the Supreme Court does, women don't have the access to reproductive choices and support that they should have already, even before the court has acted. And so we have a lot of work to do, but that also means there are a lot of arenas in which we can do work to get the law and women's experience in a much better place over the next decade or so. And one of the important lessons is that it's not just about law. It's not just about litigation. It's not just about Roe v. Wade. It is about politics. It is about electing political elected officials and challenging systems that skew our governmental structures so that state legislatures are gerrymandered, that Congress is increasingly gerrymandered, all these kinds of big structural things, they matter when it comes to what do I want for reproductive freedom? What do I want for women's empowerment and so on? And so the right wing paid attention to those things over the last several decades. And so must we. It's not just about sitting around and having a discussion about Roe v. Wade. It is about getting out and electing the officials who create the laws and who ultimately appoint the judges and who can expand the Supreme Court or change the courts over the next decade if we do our work right. Another important lesson that the right wing paid attention to in this case and that we paid attention to in some of the successes we've had over the decades is building blocks. And we've talked about this already. They didn't just go all or nothing always on Roe v. Wade. When they took that major loss from their point of view in 1973, they got to work and they began chipping away and eroding and creating other processes and impediments and centers of political gravity at the state level. They went out and captured a, a political party, Republican Party. They uh, stacked courts. They stoked public education. They tried to poison people's understanding and attitudes over decades of campaigning and engagement. Well, all of those things work in either direction. 
And this is the work at hand for us. And we know we can do it because we have examples of success in our own history that point to where we have made the country a much better place. Even on the question of women's empowerment, it's true. We're in a dire and, and shameful moment with regard to reproductive freedom and, and all that that means for women's empowerment. But at the same time, women have never been more empowered in our society, have never been more respected. The barriers against sex discrimination have never been eroded as much as they are now. And so we're not starting from zero, even though it may feel like Groundhog Day and we're having to fight some of the battles we've had to fight again. We are starting from a place where we have tremendous elements and progress to work with. And we have these lessons about what it takes to achieve change that our opponents have not melted away or shied away from either. And so we must engage. All of these incredibly important movements and battles at this particular moment in history may pale in comparison to the fight between right-wing authoritarianism and progressive multiracial democracy in this country. That's like the overarching battlefield. Do you have any suggestions for the Democrats to win this kind of existential fight? Yes, I, I completely agree with you that more important than any one of the single things we all care about, and there are many, you know, whether it be gay rights or the freedom to marry or women's rights, except all of which matter immensely, the environment, the most important battle of our moment is the battle to preserve and strengthen democracy here at home and, and also around the world because we're not in a vacuum. We're backsliding here in the U.S. and we're under threat here in the U.S. and we have to get our house in order. So I completely agree with you on that. And I think that relates to a lesson from what we were just talking about with regard to reproductive freedom, which is there is no substitute for political engagement. Political engagement is not the only thing that matters. Public education, organizing, community building, storytelling, all of these other methodologies do matter, but we neglect politics at our peril. The lesson that people need to take is don't get so despondent or defeatist about this dire, scary moment we're in that you turn away from politics. And don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. The fact that Joe Biden or the Democrats may not be passing everything we want with the speed we want when they have zero margin in the Congress is sad and dangerous and frustrating and scary. But the answer to that should be, well, let's elect a few more good senators. Let's turn some states around. Let's go out and persuade some of our neighbors, not let's fight and argue with the Democrats, or let's just attack the people who are mostly on our side, but not going fast enough for not going as fast as we want. It's, it's easy to feel that frustration and to want to do that. But each year brings the opportunity to move things in the right direction and to lay the foundation for the next success and the next success and the next success in what I called way back when the scary work of winning. And that's what we need to do. Those of us who are Democrats, not just capital D, but small d, have to elect more Democrats. And in this case, that means not just small d, but also big D, because as you said, only one party at the moment is nudging things in the right direction. And however frustrating or limited or inadequate or timid or fractured or annoying they may be, they're the ones who are bit by bit by bit moving in the direction we want. 
And our strategy must be to move things in the direction we want rather than to allow our frustration to take us off the battlefield at a time when democracy hangs in the balance. I feel really honored to talk to you about this today. Is there a question that I didn't ask that I should have? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm glad we got to this last point because that is the thing I, I actually did most want to talk about. Um, so no, I don't think so. Is there I, something I think, else you wanted to say about the democracy battle? Well, I think it's important to, again, to have historical perspective. And that's what always kept me going in, in our many, many downs as well as ups. You know, there's always been whatever percentage you want to think of it as a quarter to a third of our fellow citizens in this country or fellow human beings who are just profoundly wrong on almost anything you can name. I mean, even when Nixon himself resigned in, in Watergate, 29% still were supporting him. They were more Nixon than Nixon. Um, so there's always going to be a share of the public who you're going to look at and not get how they could possibly be where they are. And that is true even on something as profound and something we thought of as so centrally easily accepted as the basic elements of democracy in America. And we know our history has been mixed on this with many bright shining moments and many very dangerous, sad moments when it comes to race discrimination or, you know, beating up on labor or the exclusion of immigrants or uh, just the failures to respect self-government for all people. America has many bright, shining moments and some very dark and sad moments. But we've overcome them in the past. We've made progress despite them. And so rather than wallow on the bad stuff and rather than focus with consternation and complete fear over the portion of our fellow citizens who are heading in just such dangerous, terrible directions and at the service of somebody as unworthy and disgusting as Trump, uh, rather than spending all our time thinking about that perplexing and horrifying reality, focus on the reachable. Focus on the people I think of as the reachable but not yet reach, the fragile majority that needs to be turned into the solid majority. We won those two seats in Georgia uh, earlier in the year. Well, let's go out and win them again uh, you know, the one that's up and the others metaphorically in other states that we need to win. Let's persuade enough of the people that we don't get mixed results like we got in the midterms, but we get the results we want to get uh, in the next election and the next election. And that takes days and days and days and days of leading to weeks and weeks and months and months of persuasion and organizing and engagement rather than swooping in at the last minute or spending, you know, a year being negative and then making a donation at the end. We need to do this work. But we can do this work, and that's how we're going to win, and that's how we're going to save our democracy. Think about what a difference it would have made if we had lost those Georgia seats. This whole story of this last year, whether it be on COVID or on the economy or on democratic repair, imperfect as that is so far, uh, would have been, of course, completely different. People would have lost faith in, in democracy because we would have elected Biden and he wouldn't have been able to do anything. Well, we have to maintain our faith in democracy, our support for our team, the Democrats, small d. And we have to remember that if we had elected one or two more, we would be also telling a very, very different story that would have felt much more empowering and positive. And the country would be in a different place on COVID and on the economy and on democratic repair. Well, that's still within our reach. And so the fact that we don't have it yet is no reason to stop fighting for it. I'm with you. 
Thanks for taking the time. Anything else you want to say? Uh, let's, let's do it. Hope, clarity, and tenacity. That was Evan Wolfson. Evan is at freedomtomarry.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.